Happy Monday, everybody. How's it going? It's going well. Yeah. Like to welcome Saket with us today. Yeah. Hey, what's up, Saket? How are you doing? Doing good. Thank you for having me. Anytime, yeah. anytime. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think the first time we uh, met was at reInvent uh, last year. So uh, we yeah. had a really good chat about data products. And I guess this is still something that's on your mind. So yeah. um, for, for people in the audience who don't know who you are, do you want to give a quick intro? Yeah, no, thank you. Um, data products is definitely um, a topic on top of mind for a lot of people. Um, my name is Saket. I'm co-founder and CEO at Nexla. Uh, engineer by background. Um, most of my engineering career was at NVIDIA. We are just chatting about this before we started the show. Um, and uh, did a first startup uh, building an ad serving company uh, back in 2009. Took that through acquisition and IPO. Advertising was a lot of data. And that was the fun part of advertising technology, to be honest. The rest of it wasn't as much for me, at least. So I decided to start Nextla in 2016. And um, yeah, the whole idea was how do we make it possible for more people to use data? And it's been uh, a series of innovations uh, going on. And data product has been a key one um, that we actually started dabbling into around 2017. Just didn't have a right frame for it. Yeah. Mm. It feels like that's kind of the common thread. Like I think a lot of people had been uh, doing something that um, I guess we now call data product, but back then, I don't know. what. what so what did you call it back then? I actually, we called it uh, a next set, uh, to be honest. We didn't understand. So what, what our thinking was that typically people talk about data sets, but data sets are often even like, you know, I have three CSV files and you call it a data set. But the idea was that, um, you know, when we started working on the company, the idea was that we want to think about the user of data. So many more people are users of data. They're not necessarily or should not necessarily be engineers themselves. So how do they use the data and where do they use it? And the understanding was that the user of the data is in many places. It could be visualization. It could be data science. It could be a person on a spreadsheet, right? Um, different users of data need the data in the tool of their choice. And how do we present it to them? There's all this complexity of data systems. You know, there's streaming data, there's APIs, and um, you know, all sorts of legacy enterprise systems. So we thought of like, okay, we need to present some consistent entity to this user so they don't have to worry about what's behind the scene. Okay. So we said, okay, this sort of looks like a data set. It's not just a data set. You know, data set could be something very simple. So we started thinking about what else, what are the characteristics of this entity? We could, it was abstracting the underlying data. It had schemas, it had versioning of that. Um, it could, you could put validation rules on it. So the user who gets the data knows that I can, you know, um, if I have an email ID field, all those fields will actually validate for an email ID, for example, structurally. So there were a lot of things that were going into it. And, um, and we could realize that this was becoming a central sort of entity in everything that we thought about. You know, how many next sets does a customer have? You know, uh, how often are they using it? Are they sharing it with other people? Um, so this, you know, that's the name that we sort of came up with at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was hard to explain. You know, one of the problems we were solving for people was, hey, um, you know, you can produce a next set by connecting to data systems and you can create derivatives out of it. And these are all logical abstractions. None of this was a materialized view of the data. And then you could consume it. Different people could consume it. So it was effectively creating a data integration. So it was reading the data from one place and was you know, transforming, delivering the data. So people would ask us, why do you have this? You know, why not just make a point-to-point -point connection and just do integration like everybody's doing it? So initially, it was something that we had to explain to people, like, what's the benefit of it? And then fast forward a few years, it started to make sense to more people. And really, if, you, if I walk back, I was thinking that, it becomes an entity, a data product becomes an entity that people can sort of collaborate around. And um, yeah, so there are a lot of ways to think about the data product, but yeah. Oh, this is great. I mean, I think so often the tendency in the past has been to think about, okay, let's build the data model for the organization or let's build our Hadoop cluster or let's build our data warehouse. And all of those things can be important, but like the focus on the end user before you focus on those core data abstractions, just completely changes the game. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, have been in the industry for a while, and yeah. there's always been talk about data democratization, right? Yeah. Mm. And um, 
and at some point, it's like, yeah, data democratization makes a lot of sense. Everybody should just get the data that they need to work with. But over time, I started to feel like democratization was maybe the wrong word we were using. It was what we wanted more was collaboration. Collaboration meaning that, hey, how can people work with data together? Because the democratization concept was a little bit weird. And it's like, what is democratization? Do I give everybody access to the database password or username and stuff? And they and is that democratization? Everybody just go at it, right? But that is chaotic as well. So I, you know, I, more I think about this from that perspective, um, the, the the evolution of the understanding, at least for me, has been more and more towards the user, how they get the data how they find it, how they collaborate around it. Because um, I feel like there are two ways an enterprise can scale, right? We can automate things or we can bring collaboration to our workflows, right? So the user part definitely goes towards that. The technology centers more on automation, I would say. And I think it's similar to what we saw with open source. There was this idea early on that everyone should just be installing their own software, making their own commits, changing their own code. And at some point, most of us recognize that we probably don't want to be installing the software on our phones, right? We want some expert to take care of that for us. And same thing with data democratization. Like it's it's great if you have the ability to access those low-level data sets, but most people who need to make decision business decisions don't have that competence to get in and understand all the details of the data and ensure quality. Interesting. Yeah. Well, oh, go on. What? Oh, well, ahead, sorry. I mean, I guess why? Why do you think it it took so long, right, to to get to this point? Because it, it, in retrospect, it's one of these obvious ideas that I think was inobvious at the time. Um, you know, we, we've talked about uh, you know data democratization and data breadlines and uh, what else? Um, you know, self serve for for years and years and years. I mean, this has been sort of the. Uh, say one of the, the quests of the industry so to speak but like the to switch it from um maybe that to product um i guess in retrospect seems like fairly a fairly obvious jump at least to me and maybe the people here but i don't know what, do you, what are your thoughts like why, why did it why did it just uh, take this long for us to finally look at it through this lens do you think yeah, I think in many times I feel like in concept, we understand how things should be, but enough forces have to come together to sort of make that happen. So I don't think that until really cloud warehouses came in that the number of people getting access to data so much more easily, because remember the DBAs were guarding the database because you just can't go jump into it and, and you know create your tables and do stuff like that, right? So I think the opening of the cloud warehouse where these sort of performance and all of these, um, you know, things were taken care of by the by the technology itself. Did so many people jump into it, and when that many people come into it, that's when I think that all these concepts that we have, like oh, we should have democratization in theory, versus you know, how do we really make that happen in practice, starts to really put the pressure on us, right? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I kind of equate it to like a Potemkin village, if you know what that is, where the um, um, Back in the uh, back in the communist days, they would have uh, these these uh, fake villages set up that made it look like there was um, something going on, right? And I think that what I could tell with with vendors is that they would say, "Oh, yeah, you can we have a you know you can democratize your data access and self serve," but at the end of the day, it was still guarded, as you say, by um, kind of the powers that be, right? And so it kind of is what it is. But the world's changing, and so it's changed. Yeah, it's. And, yeah. it's certainly been an evolution, but I, I do think that um, getting to the point where as an enterprise, also you realize that data is like everywhere, every function, you know, like yeah. every job that you're doing has a data element to it. And then if you look forward, you know, a few years, like how do we scale this? Even right now, it's a scaling challenge. And I think the scaling challenge was focused a lot on the volume of data, which is why Hadoop, uh, you know, came in and, and so did all of the other things. But the scaling challenge that is bigger now is not the the data volume or processing. It's it's the people. It's how do so many more people work with data and get to it and um, and do that in an efficient way. So um, I think that's where the focus shifts. I would say, and if you look at it from that perspective, it starts to make sense that you do need some sort of an entity that you can get people around. 
And I think that the data products are, you know, becomes that entity because we're not talking about data product, um, you know, as just a collection of data. You know, if I think about data product, and I go back to basics of, you know, what is a product in the first place? You know, in my mind, any product that we use, and I often use this example of shoes as a product because we all use it, but like any product, it is made from some raw materials, right? I mean, there's fabric and leather and, you know, all that material that goes in and it is designed and produced by somebody. um, And then the consumers can find it and then they expect certain things out of it. Like it's for a particular purpose, like we're running or tennis or basketball or whatever, and, um, and they can go use it, right? So that the idea of the product, if we take it from there and say, what, is, what does it mean for data product? What are the raw materials? So data is one of the raw materials, but so is the schema and its change over time. So are the things like, what are the validations that went into sort of, um, you know, this entity? So when I, as a, as a consumer, can kind of go find this data product, what do I expect from it, right? Um, so the, the fact that you can find a data product means it has to have descriptions and annotations and, you know, it has to have ratings, validations, but the fact that you can use it and you can use it wherever you like, you know, coming into a data product and say, I want to do, you know, use it in analytics or use it in my, you know, spreadsheet or use it in my, you know, uh, uh, for my training data, for example. So uh, that means that it now becomes something that um, has to enable that consumer as well in different ways, right? So... I think of the product very much like that. Like if I, as a consumer come in, it's validated, it's trusted, I can understand it, it's ready for me to use and I can use it the way I like to use it, right? Um, And yeah, so it sort of, you know, feeds back into the need um, for this entity that people can collaborate around, I would say. Let me ask this. Um, yeah. What in your previous experience before founding Nexla led you to focus on data products and to found this company? So what in your experience at NVIDIA and in other jobs kind of led to this whole journey? Well, that's a great question, actually. So um, at NVIDIA, I used to be in the team that writes the device driver, right? So it's basically right above the, if you know, the, the typical GPU architecture and software firmware above it, there's a video bias. And then above that sits a, sits a, the driver. And then that driver enables OpenGL and DirectX. And, and then above that come the games, right? So I was writing that, that driver. And one of the things that was very innovative about NVIDIA was it had created an abstraction of the chip at that layer. So that layer creates an abstraction of the chip. What it does is very interesting in that our, our drivers could be both backward and forward compatible. So you could buy a new graphics driver, not have to upgrade uh, graphics chip, you know, card, and not have to upgrade your driver and still use it. So the idea of abstraction, where uh, is is very powerful in software, the fact that something that sits on top of, a, you know, a complex piece of technology but gives a common interface to those who come and consume it is very powerful. So when I started to think about the user of data. And, you know, really the thinking when I was starting the company uh, and I, in 2015, I spent the whole year researching, I was like, should I go build a, you know, company focused on machine learning? Because I could see on the horizon, we had been very power users of machine learning in the advertising world for like auction pricing and, you know, a lot of interesting things like that. Um, and advertising was a huge amount of data, 300 billion records a day is what we were processing <laughs> in my company. It's a few. Um, yeah. Uh, 15 billion ads, 20 bits per on every ad uh, on an average. So it, it adds up pretty quickly. Um, and the thinking then was that, um, you know, here, you know, my thinking was like, yeah, I wasn't very clear how machine learning space would evolve. And my sense was that it's so unique to every company, like two e-commerce companies may take, uh, you know, um, may operate that way differently in what they're trying to achieve. So I ended up thinking about what do people need who are going to do these things. So then came the question of data. Everybody I talked to was telling me that data was a challenge. Um, mm. And it was pretty clear that, okay, not only these guys, but everybody else is thinking about data, even a business user. You could be um, you could be doing recruiting at a company and you're looking at data and how are we getting the resumes and how are we you know, processing them and uh, you know, um, a lot of analytics that's now going into that space as well, for example. So the thinking was, here's the user of data, here is all the complexity of the data systems, you know, streaming and real time and APIs and all this stuff. This user shouldn't have to care about that. So, you know, going back to my roots again, it's like the idea of the abstraction, you know, what is this sort of layer that sits in between? So this side, which is the user 
has something simple and consistent to work with. And this thing is taking care of all the complexity behind the scenes. Um, and that's why we said that when we, you know, this side will connect to the data systems, will connect to APIs and documents and, you know, um, warehouses and everything, but it will present to this user something that is consistent. So for this user, if they are, at, you know, their basic know-how should be, um, at, you know, at a level of being use, using Excel, let's say, so they can see the data in a more or less tabular format, can be nested, but they can try to present it nicely, and then they can apply functions on it, right? So when we thought about it, that perspective, um, you know, this is what led to the abstraction. That, and to present a common ent interface, I needed to create a common entity, an entity that looks the same and behaves the same, regardless of where things come from. And, and that whole sort of the abstraction experience and just focusing on the user sort of naturally led to, let's create um, this entity. As I said, we didn't know what to call it. So we called it a next set because we thought it was certainly a, a super set of capabilities over a data set. Um, but one of the things we also did was we created it as a logical abstraction. We didn't say that we're gonna take any system we connect, you're gonna copy the data into a nice you know, structure and then make it possible because it seemed impossible to solve the problem that way. You can't just be copying data from all these places to give this your user a view. So we said we're gonna create a logical abstraction. It will not materialize the data until somebody goes uses it. So when you come in and you say, you know, I found this, uh, this next set or this air product and I wanna use it in a spreadsheet, it will materialize the data into a spreadsheet. But if you came and said, I need an API to the data, it will give you an API. So this concept of delayed materialization is again, a common sort of concept in software development, which is like you delay those decisions, but then at the time of the decision, you can then uh, decide what should run behind the scenes to make it happen. So are you now going back to some documents and reading that and delivering the data into a warehouse or are you connecting to a stream and then giving in, you know, um, this out and delivering into a spreadsheet, that decision you can take delayed, but it had powerful consequences, which I'm you know happy to dive into in terms of yeah. many other things that come out of that. Now, this is fascinating. I mean, were you, were you so rewinding just a bit, I, I want to kind of explore this NVIDIA topic a bit more, if you don't mind. Were you involved yeah. in writing drivers and interfacing with like the CUDA team? Uh, yes. Uh, so okay. I actually started in NVIDIA yeah. in 2002. And um, what happened was um, I came in from a more of a Linux background and embedded systems background. I worked at a company, uh, uh, I worked writing software for one of the biggest tools provider for WindRiver. Mm -hmm. WindRiver, if you remember, uh, the OS called VxWorks, which was going into a lot of devices. So I come into NVIDIA in 2002 and the company is thinking, how do we expand our business? We have been making PCs and laptops sort of, you know, chips focus on gaming, but how do we grow? And Jensen's thing was like, where we want to be behind every pixel at the time. That was the that was the message. Um, so I became part of a very small team that went exploring different ideas. So I worked on a digital picture frame at the time, worked on the PlayStation 3 project, uh, did some automotive work. We acquired a small mobile chip company at the time, MediaQ. I was doing their integration because my job was really write the device driver layer that will abstract so that then once once I do my job, all the layers above that should work. You know, OpenGL should work, and you know you can you can do do all the things you want to do. Um, so, a part of the embedded this was the embedded software team. Part of the embedded software team you know then started involving with CUDA as well, which was basically thinking that it's so hard to program the GPU because um, you know just thinking about parallel processing and compute is hard. Um, so the idea of the CUDA team was like, how can we create certain sort of layers? So again, same concept, layers that will help programmers write stuff and not have to really worry about, um, or at least make it easier for them. I mean, you know, from a linear sort of programming model, right? Um, so th so that sort of, uh, all of this thing happened at the same time. I was, I was there between 2002 to 2008. So a lot of this stuff got seeded uh, at the time. For example, we tried digital TV and, you know, we're like, you know, very hard to make that ecosystem work mm -hmm. for us. So we kind of, yeah. so many ideas that didn't happen some that happened, some that you know ended up being somewhat small. Uh, for example, we did um, technology for um, these arcade machines in Japan called pachinko machines. So we did some of that oh, yeah. mild success. And then 
things like automotive were basically like, you know, eight years of investment before they became a big success or, you know, CUDA, for example. So, you know, I, I do remember, you know, my manager, you know, went on to sell um, these, um, these rack units that we would sell, you know, high performance compute. And we'd say, look, we can do 10 teraflops in one rack unit and compare that to, you know, 50 gigaflops that you can do with a regular CPU. The challenge was, in 2008, not a lot of people were looking for that level of compute. So we would mm. be basically going into either university research stuff or uh, oil drilling was, I think, one of the industries that was very, mm. you know, compute intensive. So, yeah, I think, uh, um, you know, excellent um, sort of technology that then, you know, of course, found its market um, fit and continued focus on innovation, which is, I think, what is happening in the data ecosystem right now as well yeah. is that there's a lot yeah. of innovation happening and we've got to keep on it and it takes time before it matures and, and shows the full value of the curve. Yeah, so, so let me give you my perspective. I promise yeah. this is relevant in just a second, but on CUDA, so back then I was a graduate student. I was a graduate student in physics. And so this mm -hmm. like new innovation of GPUs used for scientific computing, I thought was really cool. But then to your point, it turned out that the ultimate application of CUDA would be machine learning. No one back then, as far as I know, no one I knew was thinking about machine learning with GPUs. But the fact that that ab abstraction was developed allowed NVIDIA to be a huge player later in like the LLM space, they're still very dominant in machine learning, deep learning training because they developed this abstraction technology back then. And I think the analogy with, with what you guys are doing is that if you build these abstractions, then people will find really interesting ways to use data, maybe ways that you weren't even expecting. Yeah, uh, actually, uh, funnily, I was biking, uh, road biking with a friend of mine who has been a long-term NVIDIA, uh, you know, his VP of engineering over there. And we were talking about what's happening right now because you know last week the stock shot up a lot and they had a lot mm. of announcements at Computex, and um, we're discussing how a lot of you know things that we're trying to do in the LLM world in terms of vector and a lot of math that goes in in terms of you know matrix computation is something that's so native to the GPU because yeah. that when you are rendering scenes and you know uh, and doing those calculations, so. Uh, we're talking about that and thinking back at the companies we competed with and what was differentiating. And he was like, it's CUDA. It's the yep. software layer yep. yeah. on top of the hardware that really became the differentiator. You know? um, so um, uh, I think I think you're right. I mean, you know, part of it is that sometimes, you know, technology sort of finds that, that fit. These abstractions, I would say, and one of the things I would love to share more about is how I, I'm feeling like, it is changing the way we are even looking at data management, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Let's go into that. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the whole, the whole idea of data management has been that, you know, uh, overall, there are a few things that we have always done. We have, we have done integration of data. We have done monitoring of data. We have done quality. We have done preparation, transformation. We have done discovery. So these things, you know, we're not talking about like, you know, they just thought about like, you know, a few years ago, we've been doing this since the nineties or even before that, right? I mean, back in the early days of the database, trying to move data from mainframes, you know, that's how all of, a lot of this started. Uh, of course, we have become better at it. It's become easier and all those things. So when I think about, you know, these are the things you've wanted to do on data and each of them have been silos of, you know, tools and, and technologies um, and, and there was uh, a lot of black boxes, by the way, because of the way mm -hmm. the industry has grown. Um, in many ways, the data product, I feel like, can become the entity that sort of stitches all of this together. And I'll share some ideas on how I think about that, right? So how do we create a data product? We, you know, we connect to source systems. That's where the actual data is. We try to understand that, you know, and, and this is kind of what we talk about now as a metadata intelligence or using, you know, metadata, you know, you know, how, when does data come? What's the schema? How does it change over time? You know, there's a lot of things you can learn by observing the data. And so creating the data product really goes to the source system and to create that entity. Um, when we take a data product and when we apply some logic to it and say, okay, the data product has say a transaction, you know, it has an order ID, a credit card number, an amount and stuff like that. And we want to um, you know, create a de derive a new data product which masks the you know credit card number or which takes the order ID and finds items in it. So we're applying some logic to it. We're applying some filters to that. We are applying some um, you know um, transformations or and so on, right? Validation rules like you know does this order ID match this pattern? 
So when we we create the data product by connecting to the system, we transform the data product into more data products. These are derivative data products. And then we consume the data products. And if you think about that, that to me feels almost like we have done extract, transform, and load. But just that we have we have done this in the paradigm of data models rather than calling it an ETL integration, right? Now, data products, if I can go and find them, what are the data products that are out there? Who is using them? How are they rated? And stuff like that. We start thinking about data discovery, for example. If you have validation rules on the data product, they can add up into becoming a data contract. Um, if data products are entities where, um, you know, one of the things that we had done was, you know, it's a logical entity for us. And I'll talk about why the logical entity becomes so important, actually. Um, um, you know, if you apply sort of rules on it, then you can detect the errors and they can be associated with the data product. Like these, this data product had X number of errors. So error management can become um, sort of something that becomes part mm -hmm. of uh, thinking of the data product. So the data products start to become the um, the connecting glue around it. You you know you can create a marketplace of data products. You can have an exchange of data products. In fact, if you extend uh, you know this further, you know this data products can also be because of being a logical entity can also be cross cloud. And and the reason you know I think is very important. You know when I talk about the data product, the concept of the logical is when we were thinking about the data user, we felt that okay we don't know who the data user will be and where they would want to use the data. So if we pre-materialize the data, we said we're gonna put every data product will be associated in a table or in some you know, um, in a parquet file or something, then we have predetermined you know, what, um, you know, what is the delivery of the data. What, for example, will it be JSON or will it be TSV? Uh, will it be available real time or not? So in order to, um, you know, make it possible that the user of the data can use it wherever they want to. And that decision can be made later. It was beneficial to have the data product as a logical entity because now this entity is gonna, at the very end, will decide the format and the delivery. But it became even more interesting when we started to, you know, think about cross-cloud because we run our infrastructure across clouds. And, you know, if your data product is technically, you know, the data behind it is really sitting in, in and say, you know, uh, uh, AWS, let's say, right? But you are in um, in a Google Cloud environment. That's where the application is running. And if you refer to the data product and you materialize the data product at that time, it becomes possible for the data product to give you an API or materialize the data, let's say, into BigQuery. And it becomes uh, an interesting way to also think about multi-cloud data uh, because that, I think, is, is one of the bigger challenges that we'll see as an industry going forward is... Yes, there are costs to sort of moving things around the cloud, but ultimately when an application executes, you know, where you run that code, you need the data right there. And you think about just, you know, in a compute model, right? You're running the code in a CPU and that data is somewhere in memory right there and it's using that data. So um, the fact that compute becomes more fluid and, you know, we are already seeing that, you know, people are gravitating to, you know, Azure because they want to work with OpenAI, for example, right? Or, or Google for certain reasons or AWS. Then, then the concept of logical data product becomes a very powerful counter to the concept of a, data, of a compute container, right? So not only is it a consistent entity, it's also logical, um, it's abstraction, and, and it has that flexibility to, um, to support your compute uh, model as well. Um, so that's at least my thinking that data products can become a central entity and how we think about integrating the data, how we think about discovering it, how do you know, monitoring, preparing, all of those uh, can be thought about as actions on a data product. Mm. That's interesting. So, so how closely um, or not does your vision of a data product align with, um, say, the vision of a data product that um, uh, maybe data mesh um, purports very much. I mean, the concept of the data product, you know, as as as, um, as we have learned within the sort of data mesh conversations, does talk about a polyglot entity, and a polyglot entity should be able to deliver the data in different formats and systems. So, when you think about a logical data product, that is the most efficient way to do it. The inefficient way to do that would be materialize it everywhere, right? Right. Um, um, the fact that, um, um, but it, it, I think it goes a little bit beyond because I, I really like the concept of virtualization that existed back, you know, 
on the database, but virtualization was tightly, I think, coupled with the concept of database in many ways, right? It's the views mm. and, and all this stuff, right? Uh, but if we extend that to like, hey, we could do something similar to a stream or set of files or to APIs, then it becomes sort of very powerful sort of, you know, a unified entity across the data. And that goes back to the abstraction sort of, you know, concept, how we think about the user and the user doesn't really care where the data is and what's the format and, and what's the, you know, what token to go validate against that API and pull a record, right? So, um, so that becomes, I would say, um, um, uh, something that goes and touches on that aspect as well. Um, what I like about the concept of this data product is that when you get the data product, you get the data effectively. So it has this construct of access control, which means that you can decide who has access control to which data product. It's still a logical entity, but sort of a gate in a way. So when you come through that gate and you say, I have access to this data product, and the data product understands where the data was, what series of operations need to be done on it for it to be ready in, into what this data product is promising you, the validations, the transformations, you know, the enrichments. Um, it sort of becomes um, a mechanism by which um, um, it enables that sort of collaboration. You know, I created a data product um, and I gave access to you and you took that and you made a few modifications to it. You ended up with a new data product. Again, it's a logical entity. We're not loading the system with more copies of data, which a lot of enterprises worry about. And then you go ahead and use that. And then your modified data and product becomes accessible to somebody else who can then take your work and go forward. So this collaboration that becomes possible. And I feel like, again, if you think about the lines between democratization of, as a goal to how collaboration can, I feel like, be a more effective way of, of uh, democratization and the story behind the data mesh. Why did we need the data mesh? We needed the data mesh because everything was centralized and centralized is not collaborative. And what is collaborative is, you know, it's, it's, it's easier for people to be that producer, consumer, find the things they need to and get along with their job, not be stuck behind you know, some ticket or a queue or an iterative back and forth process. So I think many of these goals do connect together very nicely, you know. Let me ask a question. I was actually having a conversation with Chris Tab yesterday. Um, oh, no. With Leading Edge. It, well, it's, it's very, but it's exactly along the lines of what we're talking about today. So what we started talking about is what's the difference between a data product and then a, pro a usage of data with a product mindset within another product. So let me explain the difference. I would assume data product would be like, internally, I have a team that needs data, I build a data product for them. Whereas data inside a product means maybe you have a SaaS platform and my users need some kind of a dashboard or some kind of analytics for their own data in that SaaS platform. So how would you relate the, the data product concept to bu building better products with data inside of them? I think they're very related in the sense that when I think about the data product, it's not prescriptive about how it gets used. Ideally, the data product is there and different users can come and find it and use it in ways they want to use it. And a SaaS application could be one of those users. A SaaS application could come in and say that I want this data product as an API. Because when I make a call to this API, I want the data back to me. Um, the, I think what it does is that this 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 construct of an entity that you can go interface with and write an application to that versus saying that I'm writing a SaaS application and for some data, I'm gonna integrate with this API and for some other data, I'm gonna have a file loading mechanism and for some other data, I'm, you know, I have to plug into some stream. So the fact that you can, um, as an application developer say that here is a common thing that I can work, work with, you know, just because we talking about abstraction earlier, as OpenGL is, an, you know, is gonna go and use the chip. It doesn't have to worry about what's behind it. So I think that will simplify how we write the layers above that. And, in, and that's how software works typically, right? Every layer creates an abstraction or a common interface and the layer above that becomes more scalable, easier to build because now you're not dealing with all those variations. So I think that those interconnect, um, but building a product as a software product is certainly different from a data product, but yes, this data product becomes mm. used or used inside the software product, if you will. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of reminded of um, actually a, a, a real product, a physical product, like Coca-Cola, for example, mm. right? Bottling plants take syrup, turn into Coke, 
Coke is then put into various ways that you can interface with it, I guess, right? You can buy cans, bottles, you can go to a fountain and get it. At the end of the day, it's still the same thing, right? So there's there's definitely some analogies there. Uh, obviously, there's a giant Coca-Cola organization that centralizes everything as well. But, uh, you know, but the whole point is consumption, right? You have various ways to consume it. It's, it's not like, I only want you to drink out of uh, glass bottles. So here you go, right? And I think that... Um, up to now, though, we've lived in a very much a glass bottle world with data, where it's like if you want to interface with it, you can access the data through, say, this report or maybe this API. But it's it, it hasn't been polyglot as much as I, I think that what you're alluding to is, is the possibility of where we could get to, right? So, but. yeah, I think getting to that becomes uh, you know essential for the layer above that, and and, and innovation always happens. Uh, the next wave of innovation is always based on the foundations that were built before, right? Yep. So cloud became the foundation for the cloud warehouses and the cloud warehouses, you know, and, and their existence sort of becomes foundation to the layers above them. And I feel like the data, a logical data product, which can give you a common interface to different type of data systems, you know, can be that sort of layer on top of which when you can now focus on the application building side yep. of it. And it sort of creates that, velocity of innovation you know what matt you were asking about earlier like what does it what happens you know with this we don't know but if we if we do feel like you know the fact that infrastructure became something that we could sort of say i don't have to think about it i just go and use it and then when data data is sort of like that in certain pockets you know you have that sort of thing but what if it becomes this common across any type of data and batch and streaming and real time and warehouses and, and APIs and JSON and XMLs and whatever, and you have that common interface on that, then it sort of creates a layer where that next layer above it, which is again, getting closer to the user of the application becomes that much more, um, you know, faster to create, easier to create. And that innovation usually comes from that when you open up that, you know, ecosystem, correct? I mean, right now I look at so many SaaS uh, products that we use, and if you think yeah. about it, one of the biggest buying criteria then becomes what what tools you integrate with. You know, mm -hmm. what what yeah. you know can my you know payroll system connect with my you know workspace tool and you know uh, people management tool, and uh, can my uh, you know chat application then connect with my Jira tickets? You know, all of that stuff is true, yeah. but each company is having to build that, and each of those are point solutions in many ways. But if you create that abstraction layer then it becomes something that you know you can really get out of the box for many of these right or you have to go through like a centralized toll booth right there's some companies that obviously provide integrations between various services but that's expensive it gets very so, expensive yeah. right and it's still yeah. limited right so yeah. we're gonna say Matt? it's still limited. it only focuses on i would say you know the top 100 most popular tools, maybe yeah. 200 um, but when you go in enterprise and you look at, and I've seen like, you know, legacy telephony systems are existing and there are interfaces to get data, you know, out of those, for example, or, uh, you know, stuff like that. So enterprise is full of that. And remember, every time a developer writes an application that has an API to it and you call that API and you get some information back, that is data. And that is data logged behind that custom API that nobody is ever going to build a connector for. Okay, so we really have to sort of think about how some of these things eventually scale, you know, beyond and, and many of the implementations today are getting stretched to the limits, like mm -hmm. how many can you really manage versus fast forward a few years and there's only going to be more of these things, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, a few years back, APIs were talked about like this panacea, where if we just all have APIs, everything will interoperate. It will be completely magical. And You've written APIs, right? I yeah, have. Exactly. Um, yeah. API connectors. It's very complicated. There's a huge maintenance burden. They break over time. Like almost always something will go wrong eventually with your connector. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm always skeptical of that. I mean, nowadays there's a lot of conversation about this whole thing about zero ETL. There'll be no ETL. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, um, how does it how does it get implemented under the hood? Yes, you know, a cloud vendor is saying that between my two databases, there is no doesn't need to be ETL, be zero ETL, but they basically wrote that ETL effectively, you know, for you and gave it to you in a box. So uh, and well, they uh, they wrote the uh, E part of the ETL too. It's not like the transform yeah. in, the, in the E and the L part. You still got to transform e it, right? Part, so, yeah. 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 
so the tea you have to bring but but when we look at it and you know when when we say oh yeah you know all the data for this SaaS service will be available you know out of box for everybody in this uh, we understand that you know somebody has to do the job somebody has to do the job of saying you know from this application and this service this data will be brought in and available in your warehouse and you know only your data will be there or accessible to you and all that stuff um, clearly somebody has to build a system behind the scenes for that and i just think about how much time it has taken for companies to really support and build their APIs, which is effectively the mm -hmm. same thing. You know, my application has data and I'm going to make it available to you via a common interface called the API. You can call that and you can get the data. But instead of now giving you the API, maybe in addition to the API, I'm also going to put that data in a table so you can go look at it. But I, I look, look at, you know, large companies and how big an API team and how much coding they do to support those APIs. I just don't know how magically you know, the ETL will not be something as uh, equivalent to that. So whenever we promise mm -hmm. zero ETL, somebody's going to go do the work and who is going to do that work across, again, many, many systems and stuff. So, you know, uh, we, we tend to often oversimplify and say, yeah, this, you know, just like AI APS will solve everything to now, zero ETL will make it available everywhere. But really, how is it, you know, going to work and will it really be uh, as easy or straightforward as you say, right? So, um, having questions. I don't know if you guys have been coming across the question of zero ETL. I, I have seen it. And, and honestly, um, I'm going to be giving a talk in like a week and a half about streaming data. And one of the things I'm going to talk about is complexity budgets and how often, especially in startups, we don't really plan for complexity budgets. And the problem with APIs and all of these systems is that often there is a complexity budget that you have to associate with that. And so if you can find ways to reduce that barrier, anything you can do to do that means that you can allocate that budget of human energy of thought somewhere else and do more interesting things. And that's where abstractions really come in because we don't have to think about those low level things. It allows us to think about higher level things. Right. Like data pipelines yeah. like data and, pipelines, and stuff. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. And I mean, yeah. what it does is it kneecaps a lot of the data pipeline vendors to some extent. Right. But that assumes that it, the, um, zero ETL is, is, uh, able to make that translation between source and, uh, destination. Right. And so far the sources that I've seen, uh, you know, in some of the big clouds or like the, I don't know, the, the relational database that's on the other side, right? But it, it's not like there's a, every single connector known to humanity is is in there and it just magically makes data flow in. Like that's not how that works, right? So I think it's, it's, it's good marketing spin. I do, I do give them a round of applause for coming up with something that um, seems magically uh, um, awesome. I mean, uh, maybe there'll be negative numbers attached to, you know, um, <laughs> with ETL, uh, you know, minus five yeah. ETL. So it's like the uh, seven minute abs and the, something about Mary, that, that one scene where uh, you can just keep going down the uh, to six minute abs and so forth. Uh, I don't know. People want simplicity, right? But, oh, yeah. but the whole problem with, it, the, with that is, uh, and the reason I make these uh, kind of snarky comments is, as you point out, Saket, there's a lot of work that goes behind this. Um, and I don't think that that just magically disappears anytime soon. And in fact, if you're... Uh, if you're not paying attention, it actually makes it worse in some ways. So, cause now, now you're under the assumption that your source data is awesome. It's great to go. Uh, I just need to zero ETL it into my, you know, destination and, um, you know, we're off to the races. It's anything but that. I always found that the source data is still like the crux of everything that we're challenged with, I'd say most things. Yeah. So, so, yeah. yeah. I always thought that sounds to me like a little bit like the no software campaign that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Which we're like, it's still software. You just don't have to install it. So I think it's still ETL. It's the interface. You have though. to go set it up yourself and somebody yeah. set it up for you. Um, so it, it's kind of, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But I do agree in general that there are some very, very, very common cases of data yeah. from, say, the top five or 10 systems into a common system is there. And I think right. it makes sense that those get solved. Yeah. But the spectrum of challenges, you know, I feel like every new application or SaaS application or homegrown application comes in, it creates the need for connecting to it and making that that data accessible. So I, I think that's, as an industry, you've got to figure out how to support those. We've done well with the yeah. top 10, top 100, top 200 systems, right? So... So that's where the frontier, I think, ends up being um, in some of those challenges. And, and the interesting thing is that the model has to change. If the model is that I'm going to write custom code for, say, pipeline for 
system A to system B, mm-hmm. then I can only support so much. So unless right. the model changes, which is where I think, again, the logical data product becomes, um, you know, and I'm happy to double click on that as to why that becomes yeah. a way to make that possible, actually. Yeah, let's talk about that, actually. And there's a related question here from Ravi. He, he asks, um, I thought the data product API is still local to the domain. Uh, what is this common layer uh, we're talking about? And I think that's somewhat associated with the, where you wanted to take this. So, um, The data product can, you know, what I was, what I meant by the data product, uh, the API from the data product is that the data product itself can expose an API endpoint, which can become a way to access the data behind the data product. Um, so I don't know if, if uh, this question actually means whether um, there's an API mechanism to you know, go list and find and, and understand, mm-hmm. you know, query a data product. That, will, that may still be local to the domain. There has to be an access control mechanism uh, which allows people cross a domain to do that. And my, my general understanding is that uh, at least the way we, we are, you know, um, I have built the technology at our end is that anytime we connect to a data system, Anytime we find a schema, we end up generating or detecting a data product. Only some of those will become used broadly and widely, and they become what are kind of put out by the domain, typically um, in the construct of a private marketplace of data products, where you can say, hey, here are the data products that I'm going to put out from my domain because I'm going to stand behind it. And, you know, the validations have been created. It has been documented properly. And, um you know, uh, stuff like that. So the, the ownership of the, the responsibility of the producer becomes an important role in there. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be for every single abstracted entity that you keep detecting um, mm-hmm. necessarily. Yeah. Um, um, but, but yeah, to double click on, on what I was alluding to earlier was that yep. um, the, you know, one of the things that happens is, uh, at least the way I look at it is that can, can we connect to a data system given the authentication and, and look through the information, parse through that and use it to generate a logical data product automatically. And if you can do that, then it makes that sort of, um, you know, going beyond the common systems easier because, you know, um, it, the ability to probe an API and the data behind it and understand that and present it as a logical product means that we have made it possible for that complex system to expose the data to a common user in a common interface. Um, and a lot of the integration work is really about that. How do we connect to a system and pull the data and bring it to a place where somebody else can use it? But if you, you know, and, and that's how at least, uh, you know, I've approached the problem is that can actually increase the number of systems you can support. So then you can say that, you know, I'm capable of connecting to uh, any type of, you know, API, for example, so I can go scan through that. I'm able to connect to any type of stream. So you're, one of the problems that uh, that abstraction solves, at least in the integration land, is you have source systems and you abstract that into a data into a set of data products, and then there's an abstraction to the consumption, which is the polyglot output. So instead of doing this m times n sort of you know source system destination system sort of pairs, you end up abstracting just one set of entities into a common thing and that common thing into that. So you have basically com- converted an m times n problem into an M plus N problem instead. Uh, and that is where I think the fundamental shift can happen in terms of um, you know, how to support systems that are not the most common ones that you can spend the, the energy to create something custom or, or deliberate, right? Um, Interesting. Matt, you look like you want to say something. I think you're muted though. Sorry, I'm still muted. Yeah. Um, what, let me ask you this. So what yeah. what comes next? So we're here right now working on this data product mindset. What do you see on the horizon, say, over the next five years? What big changes can we expect in the data space? So I think we've just come through this era. We had the big data era. We had the modern data stack era. What can we look forward to and how is that going to interact with data products? Yeah, I think uh, when I think about the big sort of shifts that, that or what will power the big shifts. I just think in two big buckets. One is the automation side of things, uh, which is what are the things that can get automated? Can I automate, for example, we just talked about automatically generating a basic data product from scanning to the systems, right? Um, 
um, I have seen examples where, where, where we have seen like automatically scaling your pipelines, looking at the underlying metadata to say, where is the bottleneck here? Is it in ingesting? Is it in transforming? Is it in writing? And can we automatically create more streams and dynamically allocate more containers to the respective service and do that and stuff? So there are many aspects of automation, I think. So automation is one big bucket. And the other part is the collaboration, because ultimately, when I think about many, many people working with a lot of data from all type of places, both of these come into play. So um, um, the automation collaboration both sort of come into picture. So what are the big things that can happen? I feel like one at least driver for big things can be opening up that underlying metadata or know-how in the system. So for example, until now, many systems have been black boxes, right? So your ability to stitch together solutions is much more complicated or, or difficult because you just don't know how to uh, how to do that one one of the aspects i feel like is opening up that uh, metadata so uh, so one of the things that i've been doing is like everything should be accessible from our system through apis or consum consumable as a stream so i think that can be one of the big drivers so the consequence wise i think that the wave is shifting into how we build applications um because the the, the warehouse technology, I would say, is settled. And what comes after that is uh, is the next wave. Um, mm -hmm. So big things that I, I would say can happen coming forward is if we can get to one um, multi-cloud data, for example, is another is a big thing. Uh, I'm actually involved uh, with the UC Berkeley Skylab. The Skylab's concept is to create a sky above the clouds. Um, mm -hmm. And we've been, you know, um, starting found, you know, founding supporters of that initiative. So I think that can be a big thing in how we, how we sort of make things happen across clouds, you know, so that, is, that can be a one big driver. I don't know exactly how it will impact things, but I think it will increase the pace of innovation because clearly each cloud vendor has its strengths. You know, a few years ago, they just used like, it's all looked like they're the same. But I can at least see now that they are they're gravitating towards their ecosystems or strengths. So I think that can be one big thing that will happen. It's still in its infancy as far as the concept, but it makes sense to me at least where a data product is a first-class logical entity just like a container is. And, and I think that changes. When you compute and data are both abstractable into these you know, systematic entities, that can change a lot of things. Um, so I think that is, that is one big thing that will happen. Um, I think collaboration will continue to increase. Um, I'm really hoping to see that, um, you know, we can actually get to a point in time where this sort of long held goal of democratization starts to feel like any person who needs to go work with data can go do that uh, relatively quickly, you know, find the data, get to it and use that. It's still, it's still a big challenge, I think, but I think that opens up um, the applications of data to a much broader way, you know? Um, um, so that's that's the other part, and then from the automation perspective, I think there's a lot, there's a lot to come. There's so many things that are still manual. I'm very excited about generally the generative AI space because mm -hmm. of ways it, in which it can generate at least you know reliable snippets of code. I'm not yet um, sold on to like building full software on it, but um, can we create you know simple data transformations? Until now, transforming data, unless it is uh, you know something basic, requires a little bit of technical skill. SQL can be fairly technical skill eventually uh, as well, uh, as does like Python or JavaScript. But can we do some of those generative is, is again, bringing it back to the users and making it more powerful. So I think of this as, a, you know, the classic disruptive innovation, when there's a piece of technology that can only be used by, you know, it's very high end and, and, and then you sort of open it up and anybody has access to it. And the consequences are, you know, in many ways, unimaginable. Um, just like we have seen with the world of phones, right? I mean, wireless phones in the 80s, 90s to cell phones in everybody's hand. And it's like, nobody could predict what would come out of that in terms of application. Well, and maybe announced uh, this week uh, a new headset that'll just magically transform. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll start running into walls now instead. So that'd be a lot of fun. I mean, what are you guys seeing? I mean, you have so many conversations going on with folks. Right? Yeah. The frontier end. I think the thing I'm th I'm thinking about and, and talking about with people with uh, large language models and, and uh, um, you know, automated code, for example, is, is more uh, along the lines of how do you how do you preserve meaning 
right, of the concepts that you're trying to translate. So say with data modeling, for example, right, data modeling does exist. It's not just physical data modeling and the transforms. It's also higher level abstractions, right? Like what is a business concept we're talking about? Uh, who cares about this? Why does it matter? What are the rules and processes? Like that's one thing I've been thinking a lot about and talking to people about, like, how do you how do you maintain this and how do you actually make this better? I feel like that's the, the divide that I've seen with um, the high level um, concepts versus how it's implemented in, in software and uh, maybe in data warehousing. That's a giant gap right now. Mm-hmm. Maybe large language models actually fix this in some ways, right? Maybe, maybe it makes it a lot easier because now it's a, because what happens is right now that because there's such a disjoint interface between the concept and how it's translated down into the data, these things they diverge. That's what happens, and so yeah, maybe there's maybe this maybe this provides a unified way of of looking at data um, and preserving meaning. So that's one thing I've been talking to a lot of people about for obvious reasons. All right, what Matt? What are you what are you seeing out there? What are you talking about? Yeah, a couple of things very related to what you guys are talking about. I, I think one <clears> of the <throat> really fascinating things about large language models for me is that the more I look at the applications and the more I play around with them, I realize that these are so a database you can think of as a tool that maybe augments humans, but also just augments machines. You can have software talk to a database and you know the software talks to the database that never, human never directly interacts with it. Whereas large language models are specifically, I, I think a tool that's really good for enhancing human capabilities. So going back to the software discussion, Saket, like I would never just have a large language model write code and then try to deploy it without checking it. Like you need a human in the loop to work with these tools right now. And so to me, that's kind of fascinating because I'm curious what that will lead to in terms of like augmenting human capabilities. And then there's the second ethical question about how maybe LLMs do eventually replace more human labor and what that does to the labor market and everything else. But I think for now, we're not at that point. Um, But I think that is closely related to what you're talking about, Joe, this idea of um, pretty dramatic enhancement of human capabilities in terms of designing data models, for example, like you have this intermediate layer that can do a much better job of, of translating human thoughts into something useful. Yeah. 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 Yeah, That's, that's, and, and for the audience out there, I know I talked about this wonderful book I'm writing. This is exactly why the book is late. Um, (laughs) is because everyone started using chat GPT all of a sudden. I'm like, huh. And co-pilot and everything else. And then it got me thinking, okay, so what's the next bridge? Because I, I, right. I, you know, um, so yeah, um, lots of uh, navel gazing and pontificating right now, trying to figure this out. Because it's this is, uh, as you point out, it's like a, new interfaces, new ways of, of yeah. um, interfacing with technology. Um, we're at an inflection point right now. And the thing is, we're creeping up on the inflection point. Not, nobody knows where this thing goes. Right. Which is exciting. Yeah. It's sort of like a roller coaster ride too, in some way. But you don't, you've, you didn't see the roller coaster before. You just hopped in the car, and now you're on it. So, yeah, um, yeah. I, I have no. Idea. It's exciting though, right? Like, I, I, you've you've been in the game for a long time. You've been in tech. I, I've been in the game for a long time, and it's like you, you see these points, and you sort of have a sixth sense. Like, okay, like this is this time's different. Something's happening here, and this definitely yeah. feels like one of those periods. Yeah. So Matt's been there too. So yeah, yeah, yeah it's. It's certainly a different uh, in many ways. I, I think there are certain capabilities that we have not you know, seen before. But at the same yeah. time, I would also say that, for example, just Matt, what you were talking about, code, right? Any software developer you ask, right, the amount of time spent in actually typing the code is not the, the main sort right. of point, right? It's like, you know, understanding the sort of business need and translating that into a system design and then, you know, how you test it and, and many other sort of things, you know, the architecture and all of that stuff takes a lot more time than actually once you know what you're doing, the amount of time it takes to type out the code is actually not that much. Um, so, um, um, so yeah, the, I think again, co-pilot and stuff, I mean, it's, it's good assistant, you know, um, yeah, yeah. the, you know, um, I think we are also seeing some of the limitations of these approaches, but at the same time, we don't know how this will evolve in the next few right. years and how far, <laughs> how, how much more, tuned and sophisticated can it become? So it's certainly an, you know, an inflection point. Um, and um, I think um, what I think from a general perspective is that it, it can certainly help people who are working with data to uh, um, uh, to better, I would say, understand what's, uh, you know, uh, the connecting the dots between the business and the mm-hmm. data itself, like what yeah. you were talking about, Joe. And when you go talk to people in a company in a large enterprise, 
and you say you know they'll be like oh yeah we have you know we, there's no one single definition of a customer yeah. or a gross margin for example and these things are are hard and sometimes you know um complicated so so helping to stitch those together is going through mounds of information and if there are mechanisms that simplify that i think that that can be very powerful right mhm um, and I, I love the phone analogy. I remember the like mm. there's an app yeah. for that era right after. So at first the iPhone didn't even have an app store. And then once Android and, and iPhone started to have apps, all these interesting applications came out that no one had ever thought of before. Like, you know, Airbnb, for example, I assume that no one was thinking about that. Someone came up with the idea like, hey, we could do this with the phone and people could rent out their places or Uber or any of these other apps. And I think we're about to see the same thing with large language models and other generative AI. And a lot of that will integrate with interesting traditional data applications for the enterprise. And, and, and data products, insights. yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Really, really cool. Um, fun chat. Um, like I said, it's, it's, it's always fun chatting with you. I feel like you're, um, it's like the way you think. You're at a, you're, you just operate at a different plane. And so when I talk to you, I, I uh, feel like you come away uh, smarter and it's awesome. So. Uh, yeah. Thank you. It's it's fun having a, a group conversation on these topics because I think so many new things come out of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's why I'm like still in this place where we still have an office and we go there and, mm. you know, three, four days a week and sit with people. I feel like there is a certain things to that interaction that sometimes is just very hard on, you know, scheduled conversation. So this sort of yeah. conversation where there's not a preset format, and we go through discussions, which is actually, to be honest, it's very hard in a company. It's mm. very hard to in a company to have like, oh, let's have a sit on the Zoom for an hour. There's no agenda, and we just chat about different topics. It right? throws people off, I'm yeah. sure. They're just yeah. like, because yeah, yeah. you're trained to think but, about the agenda for a meeting, right? So exactly. Yeah. But you go for a coffee with the same person, and you sit there or for dinner. Now what? And that's I feel like a lot of the interesting stuff happens in those um, unscheduled or unplanned. I would say. Oh, absolutely. You know, Non-agenda discussions, yeah. Yeah, they're beautiful. Yeah, I definitely encourage people to do that. I, my, my favorite thing was always going on walking meetings with people and there's no agenda. Go for a walk, get outside and just you get stimulated. And, and, and the things that come out of that, as you're saying, it, it's you, it, it's just it's impossible to replicate that. So it's really cool. Um, for people who want to learn more about you and what you're up to, how can they do that? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm on LinkedIn and uh you know, reasonably active over there. Uh, yeah. So you can find me certainly from this, um, uh, from the show. And then of course, you know, come by nextletter.com. Um, definitely we have been thinking about many data challenges and problems in different ways and love the conversation and discussion. Yeah. I think we're all heading in towards, you know, more needs and more challenges and collaboration and discussion is a great way to identify the best solutions. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And then um, you're going. What events are you going to be at uh, this month? Yeah, I'm going to be at the Snowflake Summit uh, okay. coming up. I'll also catch in a bit of the tail end of the the Databricks um, you know, conference. There's more stuff coming, you know, down later in the year um, as well. So a bunch of I, I do a lot of these um, um, Gartner events as well. Mm. Uh, we get to meet uh, chief data officers and CIOs. Um, you know. Um, it's called the Ivanta event. So we do a lot of those actually. That's cool. Um, yeah. But yeah, typical staff, you know, AWS reInvent and all of that stuff that will be there. Yeah. Nice. We'll see it reInvent. Awesome. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, thank you. And Matt, anything going on with you upcoming? Uh, yeah. On Wednesday, there's the Enterprise Data Summit coming up and I'll be on a panel with Mark Freeman, Chad Sanderson and Jasmia Henry then. Um, the URL for that is Enterprise Data Conference. So the, it's Enterprise Data Summit, but the URL is enterprisedataconference.com. And then on the 13th, I'll be speaking at Apache Beam Summit in New York City. That's at Pier 57. And if you want to get tickets, um, I think you can get them at beamsummit.org. That will also be broadcast as a stream on the 18th if you're interested in that. So and if you're interested in any of those events, feel free to reach out and I can connect you. Awesome. Oh, if I can add, then I'll just say yeah. that at the Snowflake Summit, we are doing this happy hour um, at a place called Flight Club. It's a darts place. Oh, Flight and Club? Oh, that's really cool. Flight, nice. Yeah, Flight Club. It's a cool name, actually. Yeah. Uh, it's a darts place. And then we're, do we're doing this with a few other companies, I think Excel Data, Selectstar, Privacera. So cool. it's open. You know, come by. We'll be, you'll be, we've been sharing the invite link. Uh, you know, love to see people. So definitely look for that Tuesday, June 27th. Yeah. 
awesome. doing that. Nice. Very cool. That's awesome. Um, let me see. Next week, we got Colin Zima from Omni on the show. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, oh, yeah. He's, he's fun to talk he's to. Awesome. So, yep. Yeah. It's going to be good. I don't have any events coming up until uh, Vancouver, which is, I'll be there the 21st to the 23rd. And then I'll be in the San Francisco. Uh, the 27th to the 29th or something like that for uh, some various things around the Databricks Summit. And then I might be at Snowflake Summit Monday. I don't know yet for Ethan hour, Ethan's happy hour. But anyway, fun, fun times. Uh, I am looking at my calendar and I have like 15,000 podcasts I'm doing. So that is really fun. So stay tuned for that. Actually, got one from uh, John Coutte uh, dropping out um, uh, tomorrow. So he's uh, from Stream. So that's going to be dope. Um, but yeah, yeah. Just uh, kind of laying low, so just rare these days. But well, cool. So like, it's, it's a one. It's a it's, it's wonderful talking to you as always. And so I uh, hope hope you get back on again, um, or um, or you can be on my other podcast. We can chat even further. So <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. It's though. been a pleasure. Anytime, yeah, man. Anytime. Thanks. All right, take care. Thanks, audience. See yeah. you. Bye. -bye. Yeah.